Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. The second part of the United Nations Biodiversity Conference, commonly known as COP15, kicked off in Montreal, Canada on December the 7th. China chairs the summit after the first meeting took part in the Chinese city of Kunming in October last year. The current meeting is focused on adopting a landmark document that would set targets for the next 10 years for the world in biodiversity protection. How close are we? What are the most contentious issues in the last mile of the negotiations and what has China been doing in reducing biodiversity loss? I'm pleased to be joined from Montreal, Canada by Lu Zhi, Professor of Conservation Biology at Peking University and Executive Director at Peking University Center for Nature and Society. She is also the founder of environmental NGO Shanshui Conservation Center. She is attending the meeting as an observer. Professor Liu, welcome to the point. So help us understand how big of a challenge are we faced with in terms of uh, biodiversity loss globally? We are still in decline in, in terms of uh, biodiversity loss, I understand. This current status is very uh, serious. The Biodiversity uh, Convention, Biological Diversity Convention was launched in 1992. So it's been 30 years. The, the, the intention of this convention is to halt the decline of biodiversity. However, in past 30 years, some of the trend are not only not stopped, but uh, actually went worse. In fact, we are in the what we call the sixth extinction, uh, which means that the extinction rate of species is hundreds to a thousand times more than the average uh, rate. Uh, and most of this problem is caused by ourselves, by the human species. So really, uh, halt biodiversity loss and the uh, uh, reduce uh, the decline trend is to deal with ourselves. Yeah, I understand the current meeting tries to build on the work that was done in Kunming last year and aims to adopt a post-2020 global biodiversity framework. If successful, people are saying this could be the Paris moment for biodiversity. So according to your observation, how likely is there going to be a breakthrough to at least Bring, start to bring the trend around? And what's the biggest sticking point right now? Post-2020 global framework is a major outcome that uh, this meeting's aim. The Kunming uh, declaration showed political wills uh, of countries all over the world. But when you get to the point of what needs to be done, who will take what responsibilities? This is what the post-2020 global biodiversity framework will define. So uh, different countries will have different background in their development and their interests. So the negotiation is right now going on. I was sitting as an observer watching the debate. Um, mm -hmm. It is very, very slow process. It's been four years. Negotiation has been going on for um, four years. And still, when the, the document was submitted for final uh, uh, negotiation, there were still many, many brackets, uh, mm -hmm. which means undecided points. The uh, process right now is to remove 
these brackets to reach a consensus. Did you it's calculate how many brackets are there? Well, before we came to Montreal, there were 900 brackets. Wow. Yeah, do you think there will be many sleepless nights and people will not be able to leave unless they reach a deal? I heard that negotiation teams only had like two hours of sleep every day. So it's very Mm -hmm. exhausting. And Mm -hmm. uh, so to reach a consensus, I would uh, imagine that there will be a lot of uh, compromises. I consider this is still a progress uh, improvement to compare with, say, three years ago, four years ago. What's the biggest sticking point right now? Well, there are several several points. Uh, one is financing. Who is going to pay for biodiversity conservation has a cost. And unlike uh, climate change, biodiversity, rich biodiversity mostly are inhabited in poor countries and undeveloped countries. So whose responsibility is it to protect mm-hmm. the biodiversity? Necessarily, some of the development needs of those countries will be affected, but then would they, will they get compensated for that? Who will mm-hmm. pay for it? So this is the one sticking point. Then the financing is far less from what's needed. The figure now raised by different countries is far from the, the need. And I guess what I have observed is the uh, debate on overall development directions of human society. One, one point I found in, very, very interesting is that the word Mother Earth appeared many, many times. And one group insists that Mother Earth should be the center of the concern. But some other countries would think that human development would be the center of the concern. Still, you know, it's a conservation versus development. Well, as you mentioned, financial resources, I read the, the current draft. It sets the goal of increasing financial resources from all sources to at least 200 billion US dollars per year and uh, increasing by at least 10 billion US dollars per year international financial flows to developing countries this is not a lot of money is that going to be enough well <laughs> yes it's not a lot of money if you compare with say a lot big gigantic development projects i mean like like in our country one kilometer of highway takes uh, 100 million RMB or 500 million RMB. And it's not a lot of money to protect the biodiversity to compare with those uh, huge development projects, but that's the current situation. The money invested in biodiversity conservation is far less than development investment. Because yeah. I think one point is that the return of this investment will be for everyone. No one individual or individual company or individual country will singly benefit from this is a public good in the Aishi biodiversity targets that were set for the past decade uh, there were many many goals 60 or so but the great majority did not materialize is um, that a consideration for the chair and for the participants when they're talk when they're negotiating the current uh, framework document so this at this time the target we the general term we use is both ambitious and realistic targets. Given that example, we're talking about 30 land and 30 sea protected. uh, 30%? Yeah, 30% uh, in this uh, framework. And that has reached a a great consensus overall. Is it realistic? I mean, for instance, if we talk about China, um, basically the goal that uh, this negotiation wants to um, set is to 
um, protect 30% of land areas and sea areas of the earth by the year 2030. But if you look at uh, China's data, for instance, by the end of 2019, China only has 18% of its land areas and less than 5% of its oceans protected. So how is China going to achieve the 30% target by 2030? I think that we have to be innovative. In addition to protected areas, which is designated by government officially, one other form of protected area, which is called OECM, um, meaning other effective area-based conservation measures is also taken into consideration. That means whoever wants to set aside a piece of land for protection, either as a farmer or village, which has, has been happening all you know, for sacred lands uh, in minority uh, areas, like Tibetan area, there are many sacred lands, sacred lakes. These mm -hmm. are all counted, meaning effective protection that is implemented by people, uh, which is a bottom up uh, interest based on their own needs or the beliefs they have. This kind of protection is also considered, could also be considered. For example, our Peking University campus set our, our campus as a conservation area. We have over 20, 240 birds living together with 50,000 students and faculties uh, in the small area. 200, 250 different species, you mean? 240, 240, yeah, 240. which takes about one-seventh of the country's bird number, bird mm. species number, which is amazing which also so, means that living together with biodiversity is possible. Well, zooming out, looking at China's efforts, in February in an article you wrote that uh, undoubtedly China is building a comprehensive system of biodiversity protection, but you also said in line with the global trend, China's biodiversity is still in decline. So what is the biggest challenge for China at this moment and what has the country been doing to address the issue? Yeah, taking panda as an example, which is a successful example of uh, species protection all over the world. The status of a panda downgraded from endangered to uh, vulnerable. However, the habitat of the panda is continually being fragmented by development, road construction, uh, hydropower construction, and other development, agriculture, etc. So. Um, it's the development activity has to take habitat, species, and ecosystem into consideration. That level of awareness uh, should be raised higher, a much higher level. That necessarily means when bank invest in the project, you need to assess your impact on environment, on biodiversity. A company would like to develop a project, you need to ev evaluate your impact, which is also defined in the post-2020 global uh, biodiversity framework requiring all government projects, all companies evaluate that impact and report, disclose their impact for hmm. public to overview, to, to supervise, to uh, evaluate. So yeah. it is, this is what we call mainstreaming. And for every individual, when we consume, when we, as a consumer, when we consume, we need to consider what our individual impact, what we call yeah. ecological footprint is. Yeah. So, so finally, China is chairing this meeting and China is chairing this document that uh, every, um, the great majority of countries 
will have to put their weight behind, will have to endorse. Um, is China, do you see signs that the Chinese government is seriously committed in not just bringing people together behind this paper, but really put it into action? Definitely. It is a tough job because we're talking about 193 countries and each one has different interests and opinions. Um, so China, by chairing this, this conference, you need both the patience to in, be inclusive to different opinions, but also determined, you know, making decisions to show the leadership. At this moment, we are observing the first part being inclusive. So in next week, we'll probably see more of a decisive uh, uh, gestures. But, but in terms of implementing the targets, meeting the targets, do you think, because for instance, China has the uh, lucid water and lush mountains are invaluable asses and this idea is being drilled into the minds of the masses. Do you see China really being serious in implementing, in reaching these targets by policy action? Yes, if you talk about China's policy action, I would think China's policies are much advanced actually in the world. Again, implementation is a challenge to everyone, China too. That also necessarily means the financial investment, but also in the meantime, the requirement, like I said, requirement of implementing biodiversity or observing, uh, evaluating biodiversity impact in all development projects is the key. I think the conservation side, China is doing very well. Thank you so much. We have to leave it there. Professor Lu Zhi from Peking University and Executive Director at Peking University Center for Nature and Society, also founder of environmental NGO Shanshui Conservation Center, joining us from Montreal, Canada, on the sidelines of COP15. After the break, semiconductor giant TSMC unveils a 40 billion US dollar manufacturing site in the US state of Arizona. What is the US strategy? on this. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. <laughs> we then learn to speak. <laughs> Though our languages, cultures and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. General Railway Company Hear the difference. Join our global network to connect with the world. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. The Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, commonly known as uh, TSMC, has made one of the largest foreign investments in U.S. history in the state of Arizona. The ambitious chipmaker invested billions of U.S. dollars into this grand U.S. project. U.S. President Joe Biden paid a visit to the site last week, aiming to celebrate, quote-unquote, American manufacturing is back. What does the U.S. intend to achieve in the chip-making industry? How is China relevant in the developing story? And how will measures taken by the U.S. in the past few years impact the international chip-making industry? To find out more, I was joined from Beijing by Zhang Fan, Associate Professor of Beijing Normal University, and from Adelaide, Australia, Simon Lacey, Senior Lecturer at the School of Economics and Public Policy at the University of Adelaide, and former Vice President of Huawei Technologies. Professor Zhang, let me go to you first. Now, 
In October, the Biden administration imposed the latest series of uh, export controls in this matter. What do you see by now is the real purpose of U.S. policies? And according to what international rules does the U.S. take such actions? In my opinion, this is kind of a, a panic reaction to um, to rectify a earlier mistake. Uh, so earlier, they imposed restrictions on exports of advanced chips to China. But instead of uh, sort of crashing the Chinese uh, manufacturers that uses those, chip, those chips, uh, it really um, made a cocoon for the Chinese domestic market to be captured by Chinese chip makers. So those guys are now advancing very quickly. So the uh, their sales goes up by 30% every year. And very recently, there's a memory chip manufacturer whose uh, technology is surpassing the US. It's just falling behind South Korea just a little bit. So Apple sort of announced they want to use this Chinese makers chips. And that really run about in, in Washington and in their new bill, this particular company is, is very heavily targeted. So you can see this kind of a reactive element in it. What's the ultimate purpose of the United States is to suffocate China's chip production or chip industry? Yeah. So so the chip industry is going going up really fast and it's becoming a, a real competitor on the on the global stage and they, they want to uh, they want to just push it back down All again. Right. So all right, Professor yeah. Lacey This is not the first of uh, similar measures, if not same measures, but uh, similar measures to achieve the same end, as I understand. And uh, restricted steps actually have been taken since 2018. Has the U.S. so far achieved at least part of its intended goals, or does it envision an eventual effective blockade of China's uh, chip industry or chip sector if it pursues this policy to its full? Yeah, I think um, I, I really wonder whether uh, people in the U.S. have really sat down and thought about, you know, what the long term implications of this all are or what the what sort of the end game of this strategy is. I mean, certainly in the, in the shorter term, it, it's achieved um, some of its objectives. I mean, the, the objective of hobbling uh, Huawei was certainly achieved to a limited extent on, on, on foreign markets and, and in the rollout of 5G. But really, can you deny China this sort of technology in the long term? And if you deny it in the short term, then obviously, won't it just develop that technology on its own in in the long term? So really, I I really wonder what sort of the long, what the end game of this strategy is um, by American strategists. But do you think apparently the US is trying to suffocate China's chip industry and all the related high tech sector? Yeah, I think if you if you're looking to understand, you know, why this is happening, it's fairly clear that the US sort of sees itself as as in competition with China across, you know, multiple fronts, including economic, commercial, and military. And this is, you know, competition. Um, this is a competition where the, the only rule is really sort of to win. It was actually um, Penny Pritzer, who was Obama's uh, Commerce Secretary, who said in 2016 that it was imperative that the US maintain its leadership in semiconductor technology and Trump really sort of doubled down on that. So the, 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 the overriding imperative is to maintain US dominance in this core technology. Professor Zhang, as you just mentioned, according to Chinese numbers, China bought more than 300 billion worth of semiconductors in the first 10 months of this year, uh, making chips its largest import. Meanwhile, China's exports of chips grew by 8% compared to last year, and the unit prices of its exports are also increasing, which means Chinese companies are actually benefiting from the rising chip prices as a result of U.S. policy. And China is also speeding up its domestic chip development and sector. 
Can the U.S. effectively control international trade on chips without hurting its own interests? Uh, no. So, so this time, so so what's happening is that the chip, Chinese chip makers have been making real good progress um, on both technology and their and their production of scale. Uh, they're also they're, they're making so much money. They're investing billions and billions of dollars across many many, many um, cities in China to boost their production. Um, so so what what the U.S. is doing now is going further upstream. Uh, try to cut off the the, uh, the equipment that these uh, chip makers need to make the chips. So it's it's repeating the same game, but further up the uh, up the supply chain. The the, right. the U.S. vendors themselves said, you, "You you can't be serious. You're playing the same game, giving this market back to Ch- to Chinese competitors." Yeah, one of the things that the U.S. tries to do is to cut off supply of uh, advanced chip making machines, for instance, from Netherlands or elsewhere. Uh, U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, as I said, she said in November, early November, that I think you will see that Japan and the Netherlands will follow our lead, but the Dutch uh, foreign trade minister actually said the Netherlands will not copy the American measures one to one, and the Dutch company ASML, which is one of the world's leading makers of chip making equipment, said it will continue to ship some um, lithography chip equipment to China. Of course, not the uh, extreme ultraviolet ones. So, why are these countries taking a different stand, at least to us, at least uh, slightly distance themselves from the U.S. policy, Mr. Lacey? Yeah, I, I also read the comments of, of the uh, of the Dutch foreign minister. I think it was interesting because the the language he used was that the the definition of the U.S. for using of dual use technologies was not the official one. They sort of expanded the scope to go beyond what was officially recognised as dual use technology. I think the Japanese will will fall in line with with the U.S. position. I think the big question mark is the Koreans, right? So you've got Samsung and SK Hynix that both have manufacturing plants in in China, and and Korea sort of does have a strong history of standing up to the US at least initially on 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 Huawei as well but I think the 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 Koreans are are, are very hard-nosed about sort of making those decisions in terms of their own kind of narrow interpretation of what's in their what's in their national interest so I think that's really the question mark is will will countries follow Mm-hmm. Well, countries are obviously under a lot of pressure or regions, you know, including the Taiwan region of China. Um, you just mentioned Japan. Japanese observers have also warned that Japan's domestic chip industry will be scathed if Japan complies. And Australia, uh, the country that you are based in, Australian Trade Minister Don Farrer actually said that Australia will use cool and calm foreign policy to limit trade problems early so that so that maybe we don't have to go to the more draconian actions that the U.S. has gone down. Professor Le- Mr. Lacey, once again, how do you look at these comments? I mean, are countries compelled to comply with U.S. policies despite their own legitimate interests? Yeah, I mean, when you what we saw um, in, in the Huawei campaign was that the U.S. Um, really just got increasingly sort of shrill in its demands, particularly vis-a-vis the U.K., um, to, to sort of drop uh, Huawei and really sort of brought a lot of pressure to bear on, on other allies. Um, and and that, that succeeded to a certain extent, but I also felt that, um, you know, there was kind of a growing, there was growing discomfort with, um, with China, which was sort of also accelerated by um, the initial uh, uncertainty around around, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic. I think, I think countries have sort of re- 
calibrated their stand towards China um, since since sort of the, the end of the 2010s and people are just a lot more, I mean, governments are a lot more um, wary of China. But I, I just think um, we'll have to wait and see how it plays out and on, on how successful the, the US is really on convincing allies. I mean, the, the comments of Trade Minister Farrell, I think, are best sort of understood in, in the context of, uh, you know, a desire by the Australian government to really no longer sort of stoke the fires of confrontation between Australia and China and, and, and lead to a sort of more, uh, to a calmer relationship and a, and a more um, sort of productive uh, relationship, one that's less driven by conflict. Yeah. Professor Zhang, do you think the U.S. worry that, uh, you know, the so-called dual-use technology will give China the kind of upper hand in um, doing bad things in the world? Do you think that kind of argument is uh, well ground, is grounded in facts and is uh, can serve as a basis for, you know, restricting international trade that are legitimate, that are uh, actually, you know, protected by international rules on trade? Uh, no, I mean, they find all sorts of excuses for for. for trying to, to hold on to their technological monopoly. Um, so in the 80s, you know, they did, they did even more drastic things uh, against Japan, um, their own ally, and, and slapped some anti-dumping thing, forced Japan to, to voluntarily forego exporting their, their semiconductors. That's, uh, that's when the, uh, the U.S. came back up. So with China, you know, it's, it's, it's all about competition. So it's military stuff, but China hasn't... You know, been involved in any war for so long. I mean, uh, and do use it, if you compare American, uh, you know, military con contractors' uh, role in their in their economy and uh, Chinese dual use is, is is non non-existence. In any case, that's not a, not the excuse. If if that's the excuse, something can be used for military purpose. Then you sh you need to go and kill everybody, all the kids in the world, because they can become soldiers that fight American soldiers one day, right? So that, that that that's logically it it doesn't it doesn't follow uh, and rule wise the their action against Japan was was ruled to be against WTO rules uh, later on and then now they are they they have this long arm jurisdiction they they're not only restricting American companies they're restricting American nationals that currently um, work for other com companies so there's a huge evacuation of Americans out of Chinese factories right now never mind you know, con contractual obligations. It, it's, it's all of a sudden, everything's just out of the window. Uh, your property is no, no longer your property. Uh, you know, contract doesn't mean anything. It's just weird now. With that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point with me, Li Xin. As always, you can join me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Li Xin in Beijing.